Well, we thought the reception, like you were staying here or something, so the reception had, and you were... No, I was just sitting out there waiting for you guys to come and get me. Ah, fuck. How have you been here? fucked up. Welcome back to What You Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. We just had a great interview with Stephen Keane, but uh, after a little slow start, we <laughs> left him waiting for a while. Yeah, we did. This is our first uh, in-person interview. Live. Um, so, yeah, we live. fucked it at the start. Yeah. We left him waiting the reception for he 15 wasn't, minutes. He wasn't, but happy. Anyway, he wasn't happy, but we, that, we got there in the end. Yeah, we had an incredible interview after that. So, well, we go into property mm-hmm. pretty, pretty detailed and what's to come in property. So, if you are, you know, if you, your name's Sue and you're 30 years old and you've just bought a a house and you leave it up to 90% debt, yep. get the fuck out. Yep. <laughs> Even if your name's not Sue. Yeah, it's made Sue up. Yeah. Uh, basically, we did his book, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? We can't. He said there's no there's no hope. Yeah. <laughs> the only hope is if uh, the environment gets fucked and then we have to fight climate change. It's the only, the only way out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the main takeaway, and which he goes into pretty deep, is that's, that's credit is the derivative of of debt yeah like the change no, no, no the change in debt and yep. once that the derivative goes down yep. the acceleration of debt goes down then there's yep. all this money disappears from the economy yeah and then once all the money disappears from the economy we have a serious crash and, yep. and there's a lot of countries in the world right now who are in way too much debt and there's yep. only one way one way out yeah so that's spot on mate uh yeah there's a, a few um economic terms that we try to we try to slow down a little bit on but um mate crash is coming crash Protect is coming yourself, smart out. he's got a few solutions uh listen in and he's yep. got some advice yep. for people as well so i think there's a lot to learn from steve Keane compared to a lot of the mainstream economists who are out there so listen up guys hope you enjoy it and learn as much as we did we learned a hell of a lot he's <laughs> yeah. fucking smart this dude <laughs> he knows his shit and he knows his shit and uh yeah enjoy crash in the country that crashed back in 2008. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I, I divide the world into sort of two, well, there's three groups. There's what I call the walking debt of debt. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who already had a financial crisis by private debt dynamics. Mm-hmm. And that's mainly the USA, Japan, UK, and most of Europe. Then I call the zombies to be. Mm-hmm. Those are countries which managed to get through the crisis in 2008 mm-hmm. by continuing to borrow money. It's all private debt that I'm yeah. talking about. So Australia's one of those. So is Canada, China, uh, South Korea, Belgium, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, etc., etc. <coughs> so they managed to avoid the crisis mm-hmm. by continuing to lever up. So they're rather than, like in Australia's case, they had about 180% of, you know, on BIS figures, level of private debt in Australia was about 180% of GDP mm-hmm. in 2008. It's now 213%. Mm-hmm. So there's been an increase in debt. And of course, because you borrowed that money and spent it into the economy, you've stimulated demand. Mm-hmm. But the only way to keep the economy for having a crash is to continue borrowing more money. Yeah. Nice. And every country that's done that has reached a point where they get uh, a peak level of debt and either the banking system decides not to lend anymore mm-hmm. or the borrowers stop, stop borrowing. And when they do, that credit-based demand disappears and the economy crashes. Nice. So how much, you say Australia's got 213% and there's, in the book you say there's two ways to avoid the crash and that's mm-hmm. keep levering up and go further yeah. into debt or you crash out of it. So how many, what is the tipping point you think where we'll actually fall out and potentially crash and how long until that comes, do you think? Well, it's, 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 an, it's an internal process. It doesn't take an external trigger. Normally you'll get one because mm-hmm. reserve banks 
which are, most reserve banks are completely ignorant of the role of credit in the economy. Mm. So they put up interest rates without realizing they're going to coke off credit demand and it collapses and that's the trigger. Or APRA does its you know, increased regulatory stuff and that also stops the borrowing and that, that's the trigger. But it can, because there's, like, you, you can't actually say what the maximum level of debt a can, country can carry is. Mm. But the maximum any um, country has carried of household debt, for example, is roughly 140% of GDP. So if you then say, well, let's say it started from 20% of GDP and reached 140%, yeah. you, if you drove a time, what you get is a, like an S-shaped curve. Mm-hmm. Flat mm-hmm. takes off, levels out. That's debt. Okay. Yeah. Credit is the annual change in debt. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the slope of the line. Okay. Right. Now, your maximum level of credit is never this smooth. Okay. It's always much more irregular mm. in the real world. But your maximum slope of that S-curve is actually the halfway point. It's at the middle of the S. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when credit gives you the maximum amount of demand. As you start to stabilise towards the maximum level of, of debt, yeah. then that demand disappears. Mm-hmm. Now, if your economy is being relying upon demand from income, turnover of goods and services, mm-hmm. plus credit, and suddenly credit goes zero, then the economy crashes for that reason alone. Yeah. So I'll give you a numerical example of the book on that front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. I was just wanting a quick couple of, just to go back a step. So yeah. uh, just in terms of some basic definitions. So debt, uh, credit is the change in debt. They're yeah, not, that's Definitely right. not interchangeable yeah. terms. And uh, when you talk about private debt, yep. I guess, what, so what's that made up of? That's individuals. Well, it's mainly, it's made, there's, there's three major categories, but one of them is badly recorded in the data, so you can't really use it. There's non-financial corporation mm-hmm. debt. Mm-hmm. So that's corporation like you know, DHP, mm-hmm. Unilever, that sort of thing. Uh, there's household debt, which is you can break that down into secured debt, which is mainly mortgages, and then mm-hmm. unsecured debt, credit cards, and stuff like that. Uh, <coughs> and the other is the financial sector debt. So you have non-bank financial institutions borrowing from banks. Uh-huh. Okay. But the trouble is that particular data, um, the most detailed data on that is the American flow of funds data. And unfortunately, the way it's defined, right at like the eight-digit level, they mix together borrowing by banks and borrowing by non-banks in exactly <laughs> yeah. the same way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like you've got a scrambled egg and you're supposed to. So I look at that. I used to use the financial sector yeah. data. I realize I simply can't use it. Yeah. But if you look at it, if you look just at the non-financial corporate sector debt plus the household debt, mm-hmm. then that, uh, for any country more than 10 million people, so like a substantial economy, mm-hmm. the maximum level that any country has carried is about is about 240% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Australia's currently at 210. Yeah. Nice. So I guess it's it's obvious after you read the book that you can't exponentially keep going into yeah. debt. And obviously it's mm. something that seems so simple, but the mainstream economists don't seem to get it. So I guess my question is, like, so what is actually the thing that's wrong with debt that the mainstream economists aren't getting? What they're not getting is that credit debt actually credit actually increases demand. And see, that's what I do, the talk I gave today, and I've done dozens of YouTube shows where I, where I do it. I show the model they have where banks intermediate. Yeah. Banks don't create debt. That's the model. They, they talk about financial intermediaries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they teach in the textbooks. Yes. And all these guys, <laughs> if they believe this stuff, they swallow it yeah. and they regurgitate it without mm-hmm. realising how significant it is. So Paul Krugman's a classic instance of that, for example. Now, if you intermediate uh, between a, a saver and a, and a borrower, then if the saver is going to lend to the borrower, the saver's cash has to fall. Mm. The borrower's cash rises. It's like a seesaw. Gotcha. The average height doesn't change. Mm. But when you say it's actually banks originate money, so banks create a debt 
and they create money at the same time, and you then use that money and buy something, that credit actually adds to demand. So like a lot of economics is telling people that what works at the individual level doesn't work at the aggregate. Mm -hmm. Ironically, this is one of the most important areas where what works at the individual level does work at the aggregate because banks originate money. So like if you, one of the illustrations I give is that if, if a group of people try to save money collectively, saving by one is fall, precisely equal to fallen income by the others. Okay? So that's the case where the individuals can save but the collective cannot. Yeah. But in this particular case, when you borrow money, because the bank is creating the money independently, your spending is the sum of your turnover existing money plus your change in debt, and it aggregates to the national level as well. Mm. So when you look at that, you therefore see that if credit's running at 10 or 15 or 20% of GDP, it's been as high as 40% for some yeah. major developed countries, uh, when that credit demand disappears, and something like you know one-third of the demand of the economy evaporates. Mm. Mm. Suddenly Unreal. all the jobs people are relying upon for that are just gone, yeah. and it falls over so rapidly. So I guess moving into property now, so you're saying that if, if uh, people stop going into debt and then there's going to be less credit in the market. And is that uh, specifically why the property might yeah, crash as well? Yeah, that's, that's what's happened in every country in the world. Uh, Australia, you know, Australia continues encouraging people into mortgage debt. Mm. It's, we, are now the, we, we now have the second highest level of household debt on the planet. And the, the only country that has more household debt than Australia is Switzerland. And Switzerland runs a trade surplus of about 10% of GDP. We've been running a deficit of about 5%. Mm. So that makes a big difference. They can, they've got that buffer, which we don't have. Mm. Because effectively, when, when you run a trade surplus, you're outsourcing money creation. Yeah. The rest of the world's creating your francs for you. Uh, in Australia's case, we're creating money for the rest of the world, as mm. well as borrowing money. So the country that had the highest level of household debt uh, for Australia, which also ran a trade deficit, was Ireland. And that peaked at 120% of GDP. It rose from 50 Hit 120%, it's now 50 again. Yeah. You know, yeah. Warm bang. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Australia has still continued going up. Mm. And there are various tricks the government can use. And this is what I really do blame the government here. Normally I, I you know, absolve the government. The yeah. Politicians get, get the benefit of a, of a booming credit mm. market because that looks like a booming economy and they can say they're being responsible managers running a surplus. Mm. In fact, what it means is they're taxing capital gains that are being financed by credit. And they therefore are in a surplus, yeah. but the private sector is getting more and more into debt. Yeah. And the, the private sector will keep on, the house sector will keep on doing it if they believe house prices are going to continue rising. Mm-hmm. So everything the government does that encourages that keeps the bubble going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you are getting to the point where Australia is, like I said, it's, it's got more debt than any trade deficit country, household debt, than any trade deficit country has ever had. Mm. And it thinks it can keep on going. Mm. I don't think it can. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, you've definitely highlighted plenty of good arguments that yeah. say that it can't. Yeah. So, so the some of the zombies to be. So you said Australia, Canada, China, South Korea. Mm. What what does it look like? I guess to the people in the what happens when the crash eventually comes? Well, what, what will you, look you, like? you, if your credit demand is say running at like equivalent to ten percent of GDP, mm-hmm. uh, which is small compared to what it was America's fifteen percent of GDP suddenly you go from demand, which is one, like in America's case, you go from demand being 1.15 times GDP to 0.95 times GDP. Mm-hmm. So effectively 20% of demand disappears. Yeah. Now most of that is worn by the asset markets uh, because it was worn by the real economy. You've got a depression on your hands. Mm. Okay? So the asset markets normally collapse and they collapse before the physical market does because 
part of the trick about asset prices is that uh, this is the supply and demand argument, but I've done it. I, I get so pissed off at people saying it's all about supply and demand, demand supplies <laughs> rigid, therefore prices rise, yeah. waving their fucking hands around. <laughs> um, so I decided to do the mathematics on this. Yeah. And the basic idea is what, what, is the, what is the physical flow of demand per year for housing? Yeah. Well, it's fundamentally, uh, a very abstract level, it's fundamentally change in mortgage debt divided by the price level. That's how many houses can be purchased, you know, standard houses mm -hmm. can be purchased each year. The supply on the other side is a turnover of existing properties, which has got all sorts of factors behind it, mm -hmm. plus new properties being created. Sure. So you, when, when what you, it takes, there's a fair bit of, of math in the actual argument, but the basic punchline is that because you've got a relationship between change in debt and the level of house prices, then there's a relationship between acceleration in debt and change in house prices. Now, when you do that S-curve thing, um, the maximum slope of the curve is the middle, mm -hmm. but then that's the, that's the, that's, you've got the level, okay? that's the rate of change. The acceleration is the slope of the little hill. Well, that maxes mm -hmm. out even earlier. Mm -hmm. So what you find is that because the acceleration is what drive the house prices, the acceleration stops before everything else. And if you look at the American data, house prices were starting to, the rate of change of house prices was, was heading down as early as 2006, it took two years before the economy itself fell over. Uh -huh. So the, that's why the asset markets go first. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do you? Yeah. So what do you say to like? A, there was another podcast I used to listen to, Property Couch, before I started again on some of your work. And I remember on an episode they had a dig at you actually specifically. I don't know if you've <laughs> heard of this, just because uh, they're pro property. But some of the yeah. things they say on it is like buy land close to the city as population growth. Uh, as the population grows, these assets become scarce and yeah. then so forth. And in seven years' yeah. time, you got the equity in this house, yep. and then you you know you retire at forty years old happily ever after, and you got passive <laughs> income. And, yeah. and a lot of my friends right now are taking this advice, so that's why I think your your work's so important mm. to get out <clears> there. So, what would you say to them? <coughs> well, there's, there's certainly so the, part of that's valid. That's basically effectively Ricardo's theory of rent. Mm. And as you do get population growing, then People who bought in the industry are going to see their prices rise, mm -hmm. and they're, what they're benefiting from, they're, the increase that's happening has got bugger all to do with their own contributions. They simply bought mm -hmm. land in the right place, and then uh -huh. social expansion yeah. caused it. So this is where the Georgias come along and say, well, that is actually not something that the individual created. So the, that should be taxed as a, a land tax to stop that accumulating in private hands. But we don't do that, of course, mm -hmm. and so consequently, that is a source of profit for those people, but that only works as long as people buying that land mm -hmm. take on more debt than you've done, and that's the catch, because it works for a while, uh, but if it was all entirely on non-borrowed money, there'd never be a problem, yeah. okay? The prices would rise, but the ceiling would be set by income and servicing of income. Because you borrow money to buy housing, and that's a rubber band in many ways, it starts off back, back in the 60s and 70s where bank managers, my father was a bank manager, expect you to have a 30% deposit to buy mm. a property. Well, you know, mm. I don't think you're talking to you guys about 95% and even 120% loan evaluation offers. <laughs> you know, that means you're everything, including the deposit, and then enough to furnish the place yeah, and buy a spa for the backyard. <laughs> so, yeah, so literally seeing those around. So wow. consequently, they're just that huge increase. <laughs> yeah. But then, of course, that, that if you're relying upon going from 70% to 80, to 85, to 90, to 95, to 100, 110, 120, etc. That's a fucking worry. There's a point where you simply, you know, the amount of mm. debt, you, first of all, to get on the ladder in the first place is going to yeah. cost you a fortune. 
and so people get older and older. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're reducing the number of people who've got the income to save the deposit in the first mm -hmm. place. So you're reducing your pool that way. And then the level of leverage that they're taking on is all just justified by expecting the prices are going to continue rising forever. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, Australia's had a, a pretty good record of maintaining it, but it's the only country, well, it did in Canada, mm. uh, are the only countries that have done that for a sustained period. Yeah. All the others have ultimately fallen over. Nice. And so you said that the, uh, I guess the warning sign is when credit slows, the change in um, yeah. the change in debt. And so you said that can either come from when the banks stop lending or when people stop borrowing. Yeah. Uh, what do you think comes first? Which is more likely? Oh, well, it, it, or it actually, matter? it's often the, the fragility of the financial system is something which people don't actually have their heads around because uh, a bank uh, has to have positive equity, a private bank. It has to have assets greater than liabilities. Mm -hmm. If it has, uh, and particularly talking short term versus long term, but in general, if, it, if its liabilities exceed its assets, it's got negative equity and therefore it's bankrupt. Yeah. Now, its assets, uh, if its assets are based on things like shares, property that it owns itself and so on, if there's a crunch in the value of those properties, then banks can go very rapidly from positive equity to negative equity, which is why they're desperate to borrow money, mm -hmm. because they borrow the money and put that on their equity side, yeah. and they manage you know, for, for a short while to be solvent once more. So it, often these things can come completely out of the blue, because... Uh, like you know, some of the some of the banks, are, some are, apparently I've been told some some small banks are trading on a, a price to earnings ratio of two hundred and fifty to one, and things like that. Well, it doesn't take much <laughs> yeah. to make that fall over. So normally, when you have the level of leverage you've got now, it tends to be an unexpected financial collapse of some institution. Mm -hmm. My favourite example there is a mate of mine uh, was a hedge manager in Boston, and he used to go on regular tours of uh, banking institutions throughout the world. And he found himself in northern Finland, and he was asking who's the main comp competition you have for deposits up here, and the answer was Northern Rock. Yeah. And he said he got off the plane back in Boston, and his underlings asked him, What's, uh, what have you learned from the trip? He said, short Northern Rock. Yeah. Well, you know, Unreal. he did so rather well out of that. So it's, it, it's because this fragility, as they lever up, they're dependent upon us. Just like individuals are dependent upon house prices continuing to rise, mm. banks themselves become dependent upon asset prices continuing to rise. Mm. But they're much more fragile because if a bank gets negative equity, that's goodbye. Whereas virtually, if you don't have a, if you didn't have government money, the rest of the economy would always have negative equity. And this is a point most people don't get. If you, if your assets, somebody's asset is somebody else's liability. Mm. Okay and assets minus liabilities equals equity, mm -hmm. if banks have to have positive equity and there wasn't government money or mm -hmm. foreign trade in there as well, then the sum of the rest of the economy would have negative equity. Yeah. Sure. That's quite okay for non-banks to function that way, but not for banks. So it tends to be the banks that when they suddenly join the rest of us with negative equity, yeah. that's <laughs> yeah, when it falls over. <laughs> nice. And if a, uh, I guess if a, if a crash comes and people are thinking either they're holding on to speculative assets or they're wanting to get into them, so, I don't know, maybe it's, we've talked a little bit about property, but either maybe your precious metals, your gold and silver, your cryptocurrencies, uh, stocks, mm. foreign currencies. What, what If people are holding these or looking to get into them, what would your uh, advice well, be? I mean, I, uh, when, you, when you have a general, when you have a crisis caused by a private debt bubble bursting, then virtually all assets fall in mm. value. Okay? They're all coordinated because this is one thing mainstream economics has completely misled us on. 
as they argue, they argue there's no link between leverage and asset prices. Mm. That's total bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> the empirical data just screamingly contradicts that, but that's the belief system they have. So if you have a, a fallover, if assets, if debt debt starts to fall or credit starts to fall, then asset prices collapse and mm-hmm. it's across the board. Mm-hmm. The only thing which is you're likely to get some leverage out of is that when that happens, bond prices are likely to go in opposite direction to mm-hmm. shares, but that's about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So our shares are likely to fall, house prices fall, and so on. And even even gold, gold, gold is a what will happen with gold and maybe cryptocurrencies is that they're not money, but they're a haven people move mm-hmm. into when there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. So in that case, that makes them potentially so, sensible to be. So in the gold to, gold's a good one. Yeah, I, mean, I, I have so many gold bugs at me, it, it, it pisses me <laughs> off. But um, because they think gold is money, it's not. Yeah. But mm. it's a speculative commodity that does well during financial crisis. Uh-huh. Mm. And Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, why are they no good at the moment, you think, if something goes wrong? It's too wrong? volatile. Mm. <laughs> and it takes too long to settle. I mean, I know that there are various technologies that are trying to get around this, but Bitcoin was based on an analogy to gold. Mm. You're supposed mm. to mine this stuff, you know takes energy to mine it, and the energy's risen as the stock of bitcoins has been exploited. And it takes 10 minutes to verify a transaction. You can't have that. (coughs) The advantage of a centralized system is, uh, as soon as you you swipe the card, the money's transferred from your account, thank you, from your account to the the purchase to the seller's account. So you need something as fast as that. And the idea that like it's possible to combine blockchain with centralized transactions. Mm. The whole idea that it has to be decentralized, this is a sort of libertarian uh, interpretation mm. of what money is. No, an anti-government sort of, mm. Mm. I don't want big institutions' hands in it. So um, is the only way out, we're in this tough situation, Australia's you know, 213% um, private debt to GDP and the other <coughs> zombies to be uh, you know, high levels, high ratios there. Is the only way out of crash? Is there any way out to... Well, the, the way you could get out is because, because the government is a way of creating money, fundamentally by accounting. <coughs> Pardon me. Just as, is my coal getting in the way, just as the banks create money by double entry bookkeeping, so does the government. Mm-hmm. But the big difference, and I'm delighted to say, uh, one of my friends at the Bank of England has published a little um, online statement, not a lot of paper yet, a guy called David Bolat just recently published a point saying the central bank is the only bank that operate with negative equity. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't matter. I mean, doesn't matter. You, mm-hmm. accept, you accept they create the money. You accept, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If they put it in your account, I'm going to say you haven't got any equity, I'm not going to accept this money. So consequently, they've got more flexibility that way. And if they wanted, as they're doing with QE, they've created, in England's case, 200 billion pounds a year worth mm-hmm. of money to create, and it's just out of double entry book. <laughs> yeah. They could have done exactly the same thing with the private sector. Uh-huh. They didn't have to do it through the financial sector. Yeah. So my concept is what I call a modern debt jubilee, but I'm elaborating on it over time. What I what I realised is that what I wanted to have was the government create the money and put the money into people's private bank accounts, mm-hmm. right? and then people who had debt, the debt would be paid down. Mm-hmm. People who didn't have debt would get a cash injection. Now, that's so you don't benefit people who speculated over those who didn't. Mm-hmm. But also, what about the level of corporate debt? And also, what about level of inequality? Well, another potential trick you could use is to say that people who get that cash injection have to use it buying shares mm-hmm. from companies, yep. which the companies themselves have to use to cancel their debt. Mm-hmm. So what you could do is have a dramatic increase in equity, yep. and you could do it on a per capita basis. It would be any 
anybody with a bank account would get the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. So you'd get as much as Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And consequently, what you get is a, a way of reversing some of the inequality, when the inequality itself has come out of the increased level of private debt. Yeah, I don't think anyone will be saying no to a, a nice <laughs> transaction into their bank account. <laughs> yeah. But would that cause inflation if, if everyone, if there's so yeah. much How money? I'm 26, I don't okay. know much. No, no, no. It's, 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 this, this is, it's just amazing how much the scare of inflation has got into the psyche because you're mm. 26, okay, when are you born? 90. 90, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's when the inflation collapsed out of the economy. You, okay. you probably, by the time you were two, Yep. You know, enable them. By the time we were able to read, yep. inflation was down to one third of what it was at the peak level. Mm. But everybody, it's been pumped into the psyche. Inflation's really, really bad. Yep. Um, inflation got out of hand at the time, but it was due to a, a booming economy and a credit bubble. Mm. And what we've had with both of the growth of China to bring a huge deflationary surge into the economy and an increase in the level of private debt, we actually want to reduce the level of private debt. And one way is to have inflation. The reason there wasn't a crisis back in the 70s and the 80s was because, uh, as well, we had a debt bubble bursting back in both in the 70s and the 80s. But when it burst, inflation was so high that inflation reduced the level of private debt compared to GDP. Yeah. So um, it, it is a case, yes, you, you could cause inflation that way. That's why I said if I had the idea of share buying, it wouldn't cause any inflation mm. at all. Yeah. Okay. So you could do something, some combination like that where you'd have, you, you don't want, you, the, the real danger for a debt deflation is that when people pay their debt down, to pay your debt down, you necessarily reduce the money in existence. Yeah. That's what, that's what uh, Fisher called. He said the more the debtors pay, the more they owe. Mm. And I call that Fisher's paradox. And he's quite mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. If you pay your debt down, you reduce money in circulation. When you reduce the money in circulation, you reduce GDP. Mm. So your debt ratio can remain almost constant, mm. even though you paid the debt down. And that's, uh-huh. That happened a lot during the Great mm-hmm. Depression, also in Europe in the last five or ten years. Yeah. So you want to have something that is going to mean demand is maintained when you go through this. And the idea of the modern debt jubilee would be providing cash inflows, so people would not you not be you wouldn't be eliminating money. You'd actually be creating money, but you'd be directing it to cancelling debt. So you'd mm-hmm. have a, a change in the fiat to credit based nature of the money supply, mm-hmm. and you'd also democratise share ownership. And is that it? So that's a. Uh, that's a, so it, it goes through in one hit. Mm. Is that? Uh, I guess how long does that? What, what does oh, that do? I, I, does it I, I'd trial it. I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd definitely want to have because uh-huh. it's never been tried before. Mm-hmm. I mean, been, uh, there's a guy who should, should research called Richard Vague. Mm-hmm. Richard um, is the least vague person I've ever met. <laughs> um, Unfortunate name. Rich, Rich, yeah, but Richard um, established two of America's major credit card companies. Yeah. And he won't tell me how much he's worth, but he's a, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and um, he got worried about the level of mortgage debt that his customers had and started asking economists about should he worry about it. And they gave him the usual stock standard answer, well, yes, their debts have risen, but their assets have risen as well, not a problem. Mm-hmm. And he finally sold one of his companies to Barclays in 2005. Mm-hmm. And of course, the crash occurred. We became friends because he's, you see, he, he actually runs a book blog as well. Yeah. And he goes to bookshops all the time. And he spotted my book with debunking economics, which immediately attracted his attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. He, he flicked it open and saw one of his own graphs staring back at him. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So, but what he, he looking at it, he said that there have been about 150 financial crises around the world in the last one and a half centuries, mm. and the only way you got out of any of them is by debt write-offs. Okay? Mm. In a couple of instances, like a huge export surge for a country like Saudi Arabia, when prices 
yeah. rise and so on. But generally speaking, the vast majority of crises are solved by writing the debt off. Mm. And uh, in your book, there's another positive solution that you propose, and that's yeah. entrepreneurial equity loans, which sounds yeah. pretty good. Can you uh, just tell us a little bit about that and mm. how they could potentially work if the government took... Yeah, well, there's one, one of the reasons that banks don't lend to entrepreneurs is most of them fail. For sure. Yeah. You know? And so if a bank does lend to an entrepreneur, they get a debt charge against their assets. But mm. if their assets collapse, you know, their, their debt's wiped out. Exactly. So there's a very strong disincentive. Whereas venture capitalists take an equity position in firms, and the idea is that they might lose on three or four, but one of them's going to succeed big time. So mm. they gain massively on the equity. We should combine venture capitalism with banking. That's the idea. But that would then... But the thing is, again, as I've had some colleagues in the States say, most venture capitalists lose money. Yep. Okay? But the thing is, banks... When banks are creating money for asset bubbles, in the fundamental sense, they're losing as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Yeah. So if you actually say, well, the creation of money uh, by debt should really be created, also be creation by equity. And if there's some losses there, then that's part of the game. Yeah. Mm. Because what you're trying to do is to use money to harness the creativity of humanity. Mm. And what we've done instead is treat money as the sacrosanct thing that can't be violated, when in fact the easiest thing in the world is to make money. Mm. It's really hard to make a profit or make a wave. Yeah. <laughs> Making money just involves double-entry bookkeeping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. I guess what are some of the... Um, I guess how is the... Having the entrepreneurial equity loans, having the banks doing that mm. as um, as an alternative to the VCs, what's the, uh, I guess, what's the benefits of having the banks well, see, with, the with venture capitalists, they've got to raise their own money in the first place. Uh-huh. So consequently, you don't have any money creation necessarily coming out of venture capital unless they lever up their position. So venture capitalists borrow from banks and then mm-hmm. uh, and then they okay. lend. Then that's the money creation, but it's indirect. And, of course... The question is, is the venture capitalist going to be successful or not? If mm. the banks could do it directly, mm. and then if you... A large part of bank operations involve writing off bad debt. Yeah. Okay. But they can equally write off bad equity. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. uh, one of Richard's proposals for getting out of the crisis is to give enable banks to write debt off over a 30-year period rather than having to take the entire charge in one year. Yeah. And that way there's less damage done to their equity than there would be if you do it in one hit. So there's a range of different ways to go about it, but the basic idea is just to realise that money creation is just double-entry bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not warehouses that have to really take good care of our money. They're factories yeah. that need to produce enough, uh, but they should be producing it for good reasons. And because it's so simple to do, we should have it done for good reasons rather than bad. Mm-hmm. And, right. yeah, it makes sense if the uh, you got ten, ten, 9 out of 10 fail, but hopefully that... One goes more yeah. than 10x. Yeah, and it works out. Paradigm sold is about a three to four one ratio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I guess you know, just to sort of slowly wrap it up, um, yeah. do you think there's, uh, is there hope? Is there hope that the system can change or? No. I mean, I've just seen, uh, it, 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 it's partly because I have such faith in people like Tony Abbott and, and, uh, yeah. and, uh, and Malcolm Turnbull, having yeah. known them at university, to fuck up. Um, <laughs> that, there's, there's no likelihood of somebody doing like a Roosevelt type yeah. thing where Roosevelt, when he actually had the bank holidays, a huge part of that was writing off the debt, working out which were viable organisations, combining them together. That's real, you know, engineering in the proper sense of the word, yeah. financial engineering. Uh, I can see us getting caught in the same trap Japan has been in for a quarter of a century mm-hmm. now. And the only way I can see getting out of it is because we'll be forced to do something gigantic on the climate 
And at that stage, nobody's going to worry about running up debt and you know, bankrupting <laughs> our children when yep. the choice, the alternative is to cook them instead. <laughs> so I guess, uh, I guess that's one thing we can probably focus on is like uh, reviving our economy through, I guess, fighting against climate change. That might yeah. be one hope of a it's, revolution. It's the, because you, because you look we at what happened. <laughs> the reason we got out of the Great Depression was the Second World War. Yeah. Mm. The reason we had the Second World War was the Great Depression. <laughs> um, so... Um, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, but what actually happened during, like in England's case in particular, is quite dramatic. Yeah. In the first year, 1940, the budget deficit in the UK was 40% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Now they're currently panicking about a deficit of three. Yeah. Okay. But now, when you when you wanted to have 40% of GDP as a deficit level, it was to build the Spitfires and the bombs and the guns mm. and stuff mm. to fight the Germans. Nobody mm. said we can't afford that bomb. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Know, yeah, it's that that we'd be saying Heil Hitler next, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. next year in the country. So uh, the, when there's an existential mm. threat, all this crap goes out the window, yeah. and people throw huge amounts of money into the system. Mm. And the, again, the same thing with climate change; it becomes existential. We just want to mobilise physical resources. Yeah, they're the ones with hard to produce. Yeah. Mobilise and create them. And then in that case, bang, whatever happens on the monetary side, we do it, we cope with it later. Yeah. Nice. And um, so this book is pretty relatively new, I guess. What, yeah. are, you, what are the next projects in your world? Uh, there's a comic book coming out. A comic book? Yeah. yeah nice. I've got this brilliant uh, cartoonist uh, called Miguel Gira. He has a thing called Seven Robots. And Miguel, Miguel's wife, Susie, uh, was reading Debunking Economics and sent me a photo of her reading on the New York subway. And we became friends that way. And they, they'd send me cartoons occasionally. They were literally Marvel comics standard. Mm-hmm. So we finally decided to get a, a Kickstarter campaign together to do a, a book on money. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the first two authors to try to write that didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I finally had to say, okay, I've got to do it. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a future project. But in the meantime, by sheer accident, I've written three satires. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out as a comic book. Yeah, nice. Which is called um, um, Econ... Or econ omics, C O N, uh-huh. yeah. um, a, an apology by the economists of the world to the planet. Nice. And the first, one, <laughs> the first one sends up Ricardo, which that's the preface. That's like a, that's the preface to the book, so it's slightly illustrated. Another one is called um, the Reality Virus. Mm. That's all about economists being affected by reality. And the third one is sending up uh, the secular stagnation argument that Summers and Krugman make about trying to explain whether why the crisis is continuing. So that should be coming out in about two months' time. Yeah, unreal. Nice. I guess, uh, so where can our audience find you if they want to learn more and uh, stop listening to these other idiots who are in the yeah. stream? The main, the main thing is my Patreon page. Mm-hmm. Because now, like, what I'm going to be doing, I mean, universities have been screwed by 40 years of neoliberalism. Mm. And it's just all, the, the, particularly in England, they're trying to create an artificial market and it's a total waste of bloody time. Uh, but all these bureaucratic rules are just getting laid on top of universities. Funding has been reduced, reduced, reduced. Non-orthodox economists only get jobs at shitty universities. And, of course, yeah. they're the ones which are vulnerable to any change in rules. I've had enough of it. So I'm going out and getting crowdfunding. Yeah. And that's through a Patreon site. Mm-hmm. So Patreon slash, patreon.com slash Prof. Steve Keen. Then I've got a website called Prof. Steve Keen, which I'm still, it's pretty undeveloped, but it's there. Yeah. And my old debt deflation site mm-hmm. is the main one. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. I guess just um, as a bit of parting advice, what's a couple of sentences? What do we need to do to prepare for this this impending crisis? Well, for individuals, don't be too highly levered. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I mean, don't sell a place you enjoy living in if you can afford it. Mm-hmm. Okay. But if you've got speculative properties and you're worried, mm-hmm. okay. then getting 
the first person into the life raft tends to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's yeah, reasonable that's, advice. Yeah, um, but the other is, you know, um, stop falling for all the myths of economics. Mm-hmm. That's the main people because people believe government should run surpluses. That's actually the reason government should destroy money. Yeah. All this mm-hmm. sort of stuff has made our situation worse rather than better. Love it. Fantastic. fantastic way to end. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that's definitely a good way to end. Yeah. Guys, for us, we think the world would be a better place if they just read books and stopped listening to some of that crap that's on the TV. <laughs> Mate, we like uh, a few TV shows, but most of it is just uh, a waste of time. A lot of the news. Books. So yeah. if you guys uh, also believe in our vision and think the world would be a better place uh, if people just read books, give us a review and then more people find the podcast and more people start reading books. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Get some, get some books into you. Yeah.